Tomorrow Unlock brings you Fast Forward, presented by Ken Hollings. Program 1, Welcome to the Labyrinth. There is a future that we think we know already. One that seems as safe as yesterday. It lies somewhere between what we know and what we can imagine. Between the limits of today and the possibilities of tomorrow. But this future has a hidden dimension, a mysterious secret area that we like to call the past. Welcome to Fast Forward, and welcome to The Labyrinth. I'm Ken Hollings, and I'm going to be your guide, not only for this program, but throughout this entire series. You'll have to watch where you're going. It's all too easy to get lost down here. There are so many winding corridors and dead ends. Technology-led progress requires us to track without pause the latest innovations, the newest platforms, the boldest business models. It's all fast forward until you don't know where you are anymore. That's when you need to press pause, maybe even rewind. This frantic pace can be fun, but it can also distract us from the useful lessons the past can teach us. Look, for example, at the controls on the device you are currently using to listen to this episode of Fast Forward, or on any smartphone or audiovisual player in your home. The chances are they all share the same symbols for their various functions. A triangle pointing to the right for play, double triangles indicating opposing directions for fast forward and rewind, and two parallel vertical bars for pause. Some platforms also feature a red disc for record and a black square for stop. This universally understood language of playback control began with the introduction of the humble audio cassette in 1963 by the Dutch engineer Lou Ottens, who died recently at the age of 94. The audio cassette was, of course, an early and highly efficient means of moving data around without damaging or compressing it. The whole notion of portable data might well have been entirely different without it. In other words, we are already inhabiting someone else's future. Our decisions have been shaped by the designs and structures and engineering of the past. We often follow the same tracks without even realizing it. How do you think we got here in the first place? The first labyrinth was created in ancient Greece to contain the Minotaur, a mythical beast that was half bull, half human. The labyrinth's creator was Daedalus, the first engineer in Western history. But even he ended up wandering aimlessly around his own invention, trying to find a way out. Sometimes the only way to do that is to stop running from one blind corner to another and take a moment to get your bearings. Can you feel a breeze on your face? That has to come from outside somewhere. Is that dripping water? Sound is also a great way to navigate, but you've got to stop moving in order to make full use of all your senses. One of the most brilliantly suggestive slogans to emerge during the 1990s was the one for Microsoft's first global advertising campaign. 
Where do you want to go today? This appeal to individual desires was perfect for an age that was becoming increasingly reliant upon networked computers. It didn't ask what you wanted to do, which sounds an awful lot like work, but where you wanted to go. Suddenly, everyone's computer was a magic carpet, playful, exotic, and powerful. The network was all about moving around, staying on the go. And today, it's still all about speed and distance and ease of access. Like the cloud, for example, an experience so magical that it is very easy to forget about its origins down on the ground. Writer Tong Hui Hu's early experiences as a data engineer helped him appreciate how much of our current technology is still firmly embedded in the past. His book, A Prehistory of the Cloud, looks deeply into the network's physical origins. I first noticed that the railroad tracks in the Southern Pacific Railroad were actually where they ran fiber optic cable. And then it made me wonder about what other precursors to the cloud, what other older networks uh, might exist. There's an idea in media studies called path dependency, which is that an infrastructure rests on top of older infrastructures. So the highway system in Chicago, for instance, is built on top of old Native American trails for getting from point to point. So I was interested in that. I was interested in the railway lines that undergirded the telegraph cables that became used as routes for fiber optic cables. We have the same choke points in terms of where traffic goes as we did 100 years ago. It's really hard to run a cable through a mountain. And so we tend to use the same locations. We tend to land cable landing points at the same place that they did in the 19th century. We sometimes talk about the internet as a series of tubes or a series of pipes. And my job was essentially a plumber of those pipes. And I wanted to actually talk about a link between that and the sewerage systems that were placed in Victorian London, a way of talking about how households could be connected to a central system for processing their waste. And I was thinking about that as a kind of metaphor for how the cloud separates us into individual households connected by pipes. There's a lot of literal places to look for the cloud, but it's much more than just data centers and it's much more than just fiber optic cables. We hardly need to be reminded that we live in a world that is becoming more complicated and more crammed with information every day. One description for this vast quantity of data on everything from the lifetime earning records of an individual to the beeps and pulses relayed to Earth from a space satellite uses that overworked word, explosion. This time, an information explosion. The problem is that our data is getting as old as the network itself. It has been forming its own infrastructure of stored items, billions of blog posts, JPEGs, PDFs, MP3s, emails and text messages. We may no longer be bothered to access any of this material, but it's all still there. In the end, is the cloud just some hardware based upon historical lines of communication designed to store our holiday photographs from 10 years ago? You know, when you met that charming couple from Minnesota whose names you can't remember now. Well, what were they called again? 
I think the more interesting questions and how network design works now is, is just to acknowledge the kind of messiness and complexity of it in that there is no us and there is no them that's out to get us. But in fact, it's a kind of messy system of rival technologies and rival countries, essentially, on a geopolitical scale. The most important thing is simply to imagine the cloud is something that's obsolete and not something that is the sort of end to all networks, right? So if we imagine as everything we've been doing is, is leading up to this point, then it's really hard to imagine as just something that exists in time and might go away. And that also prevents us from imagining alternatives to it. I think one of the biggest problems with business technology right now is that it just produces the idea that technology is the solution to technology's problems, that you just iterate and get this next version of technology to fix the last things. And what you really need is someone to think about its context, to think about where it exists in history, how it exists with culture. You know, half of technology was invented simply because someone wrote it first in a sci-fi book or a sci-fi story. It is the fast, reliable, and tireless performance of a variety of arithmetic and logical operations that gives the computer its great utility and power. But merely looking at a computer won't tell us very much about what it actually is doing. Neither will this tell us anything about the revolutionary material and intellectual effects of such machines. The great 19th century military philosopher Karl von Clausewitz singled out information as one of the biggest threats to the successful outcome to any conflict. Accessing the wrong information at the wrong time can lose a battle, particularly very old data that has remained somehow unchanged and accessible. With so many of our files left unattended on discarded servers and devices or scattered across the network, will our digital past catch up with us one day? How vulnerable can this old data make us? To answer some of these questions, Let's stop here for a moment, in the safety zone. The Safety Zone with David M., Principal Security Researcher at Kaspersky. We did some research recently looking at second-hand devices. This could be computers or mobiles, or even things like USB keys that people had sold on through eBay and, and other things. And we looked at them to see, are people erasing the data on them? And we found some scary information. In 16% of cases, which is quite high, the data on there was immediately accessible. We found that actually in another 74% of cases, you could get access to it without too much difficulty. And it was only 11% where that data was securely erased. So people thinking about what they do with technology before they dispose of it is really, really important. It's really obvious, but criminals are very interested in the data that businesses store, which is why we see these periodic data breaches where they're trying to capture sensitive information. And it's really important with the general data protection regulation that businesses are aware of this and A, only store the data that they actually need, and B, that they make sure it's secure. That way they don't fall foul of the law, apart from the reputational damage and the actual pecuniary damage that they face if they're breached. Fast Forward is brought to you by Tomorrow Unlocked, the cyber culture channel from Kaspersky. Fast Forward, because there is more than one future.
The labyrinth extends itself in both time and space. We build new networks on top of old communication channels, and we pile new data up on the old without really thinking about what happens to it all. Perhaps there are other ways of storing and accessing information, something more relaxed and accessible, something like a digital garden. Tanya Basu is senior reporter at MIT Technology Review, covering humans and technology. I spent a lot of last year thinking about how the pandemic was reshaping our lives and the way we're using technology to connect to each other. I spent a lot of my time just surfing online and seeing what people are talking about, what people are engaging in, and some of the patterns I saw were of people personalizing their online presence using a lot of different tools. One of those tools was digital gardens, and I saw people tweeting either reactions to that or sharing information about how to build one, what the philosophy was, and I got curious because personally I saw the term and had tried to start a physical garden myself and thought that that was a tip sheet to learn how to garden. And I learned very quickly that I had nothing to do with physical gardening at all. It was much more about how to nurture and, and cultivate a digital presence that was sort of a reaction to the internet that we had all become accustomed to. I think that a lot of people who are building these digital gardens are very interested in reshaping what we accept as normal when it comes to engaging online. Think about the way you use the internet, even just today. You probably signed onto Twitter, you probably scrolled. If you posted something, there was a general reaction you could post. There was a general language that you've adopted, a style that most other people will understand online. I think that a lot of our internet communication has been sort of put into a box and commodified in a way that a lot of people who use digital gardens aren't comfortable with or feel is putting them in a box in terms of how they express themselves. We're at the beginning of a new wave of research. Our creative powers are being stretched. We're learning surprising things about how we sense the world around us. Exploring the mysteries of the spoken word. Blogs have the date, maybe a title, and sort of an entry, potentially some images, but not much different beyond that. Digital gardens are a little bit different in that they're sort of scrapbooky, and people design them in a way that may remind others of MySpace or sort of early internet like collages. It's a very unique expression of what a person is and what their thoughts are, and also importantly can be changed at any time. So for example, if you're learning about a topic, maybe philosophy or political topic that you decide maybe I don't agree with later on or I have different thoughts about it, you can literally delete that, which with blogs was not necessarily possible. It's an all or nothing with blogs, whereas digital gardens you could sort of edit and share that code. I think it's more of a reaction actually to the permanence of what remains online and how it reflects on you. 
there is a sense that, for example, Facebook, Twitter, the big social media companies have decided the experience for you and therefore you must fall into expressing yourself within the parameters of what that social media company has decided. Whereas it's an open canvas and that seems to be what a lot of digital garden community members are pushing for and allowing others to not only have the creativity but not have the boundaries by which to express that creativity of thought is going towards a more democratic internet, yes, but also going towards discovering new ideas and expressing them in ways that maybe are not possible right now. Digital gardens so far represent more a common attitude than a standard platform. The people who grow them know just enough coding to create their own sites or customize existing templates to tend to their own personal online space. They remind me a lot of the web pages and message boards you'd find on the web in the late 90s. Quirky, one of a kind, but interesting. The boutique uniformity of today's social media timelines, where everyone fits into the same basic format, seem restrictive and unexciting by comparison. It seems easier to say what a digital garden isn't, rather than what it is. But perhaps in the end, the digital garden is best understood simply as a garden? It does evoke the idea of a physical garden in terms of reflection and silence. And what really struck me was the fact that currently there isn't really much outside of a physical diary that offers a person a place for reflection and thought. So I think that it's very interesting and noteworthy that this is a way for someone to get into their thoughts online. Nothing of that sort really exists right now. And if anything, this is one of those times beyond the pandemic, just in terms of how ingrained we are online with other people, where we do need that sort of space. Humans are very diverse, but many of the people I talk to tend to be white men. And that's because of the way the computer technology and social media industries have been set up. And one thing that struck me about reporting on digital gardens was the fact that it was actually very split in terms of men and women. And it made me think a lot about what it meant to be a woman online. I identify as female and I also have dealt with a lot of harassment online. And I wondered if digital gardens might provide a way for people who deal with harassment, whether they're female or not, to get control again about the narrative that they're trying to present online, whatever it might be. I hope they prove me wrong, but I don't foresee it taking off in a widespread way because we are so ingrained in what we do right now. But I do think that it offers a glimpse of what a democratic internet could be and how that's probably a happier place for people who might not have had a voice before. Whatever form they may take going forward, Digital Gardens offers yet another opportunity to pause and get our bearings, to figure out which direction we're going in and if we need to change course. 
Too often, we equate technological innovation with accelerated rates of change, with disruption, and what used to be called future shock back in the early 70s. Sometimes we need to take the time to sort through the clutter, do some tidying up of our own online gardens, and maybe even throw some stuff away. After all, it's much better to find yourself lost in a garden than in a labyrinth. You have been listening to Fast Forward. Production and sound design were by Simon James. Music by Simon James and Max de Wardener. Production coordination was by Curtis James. You also heard the voices of my special guests, Tung Hui Hu, Tanya Basu, and David M. Historical voices, courtesy of the Prelinger Archive. My name is Ken Hollings, and I have been your presenter. This has been a Sounds Fancy production. Further episodes of Fast Forward are available on all podcast channels. Fast Forward is brought to you by Tomorrow Unlocked. For more information about this series and other thought-provoking stories of how technology is helping us to create a better future, visit TomorrowUnlocked.com by Kaspersky. Cybersecurity to help bring on the future. Hello everybody, it's Jeff here from Kaspersky. Hope you enjoyed listening to Fast Forward. If you like audio series about technology, you'll love our podcast, the Kaspersky Transatlantic Cable Podcast. If interested, search for Kaspersky Podcast or Transatlantic Cable Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.